From Tesla's strong pre-sales to Takata's continuing airbag recall, the latest news from the world of cars, trucks, and SUVs. Tesla's newest car won't be available for years, but that didn't deter hundreds of thousands of people from placing a deposit on their Model 3. Tesla isn't the only name in the electric car game, and it's not the only car company in the news. The head of Mitsubishi stepped down after it was revealed that his company had inflated fuel economy numbers. Chrysler also made news by announcing it was winding down production of its Model 200, the car that made its debut in a series of Super Bowl ads in 2011 that announced Chrysler was back. I'm Keith Shortall, and today we bring in our two favorite auto experts to tell us the latest news from the automotive world and to answer your questions about best buys, safety, repairs, and all things automotive. Main calling takes to the road, but first, this news. From the MPBN studios, I'm Keith Shortall, and this is Maine Calling. So far, about 373,000 people placed a $1,000 deposit to be in line for the not-yet-released electric car, the Tesla 3. Depending on who you believe, the 3 will go on sale either in late 2017 or 2018. Tesla isn't the only manufacturer making electric cars. Chevy's Volt has been around for a few years, and their new Chevy Bolt, a smaller all-electric car, should be out later this year. Today we're going to learn the latest on electric cars as well as uh, good old gas-driven cars and trucks. And on the line with me today from the studios of New Hampshire Public Radio is Jamie Page Deaton. She's the automotive editor for U.S. News and World Report. And calling from his home office is John Paul. He's the Northeast Public Affairs spokesperson for AAA. He's also a master mechanic. And as always, we want to hear from you. What car, truck, or SUV questions do you have? The phone number is 800-399-3566. You can send a brief email to talk at mpbn.net, tweet at main calling, or post to the main calling Facebook page. Hey guys, how have you been? Doing great, thanks. Excellent. Um, Jamie, I'm going to start with you uh, and give us, if you would, I guess an overview of of how the industry is doing, that is the retail industry. We, we uh, I'd been reading that there had been um, uh, real excitement, I guess, heading into the spring about April and that it would be a record year uh, and it's somewhat, I guess, has been somewhat tempered from that. Where are we now? Yeah, I mean, we're still new car sales this year so far have been incredibly strong, especially when you compare them to new car sales uh, just a few years prior, you know, as we were coming out of the recession. Um, but what happened is, you know, we were on pace for some record setting sales this year. And in April, things just sort of started to level off a little bit. And there are a couple of reasons um, that analysts are pointing to, to to sort of explain it. One is that um, transaction prices for new cars are the highest that they've ever been, um, which means that they're starting to get out of the reach of uh, a lot of average everyday consumers. The other things we're looking at is just, you know, general economic factors, um, just and even some things related to just general sales seasonality there. Um, but one thing that is particularly interesting is uh, as new car sales have been so good for about the past three years, they've been setting record after record after record. Um, there just comes, you know, there are a few people who are questioning, you know, have we um, essentially hit the peak of new car sales that we can sustain in this current economy? Um, because, you know, you can't go on with uh, double-digit growth every single year. So it's just it's just where the industry is headed right now. And, and, and John Paul, it, it, it was, what's, the, what's driving the interest or what's been driving the interest uh, in new cars? Is it just fancy new stuff or people are in the mood for trying new technology? What is it? Well, it's a combination of both, but I think really what it is, people have been driving the same old car for a long time. The The age of the fleet of cars on the road today is older than it's ever been, and I think people are truly getting tired of you know sitting behind the same steering wheel. And Jamie's absolutely right. People, I've never talked to so many people who have are suffering from sticker shock where they go in and they're like oh my goodness I you know last time I bought a new car it was sixteen thousand dollars now all of a sudden it's thirty six thousand dollars and people are looking at these very long loans too that are sort of scaring them away on the opposite side of that there are some very attractive lease deals right now and a lot of people are taking advantage of those well let's start with that then because this always confuses me in terms of when it's when is a lease better than than buying, but what are the general rules to look at when you're 
considering a lease versus buying? Jamie, we'll start with you. Well, um, I will say from a personal finance perspective, a lease is never as good as buying, ever. It will. The, the difference is basically when you're leasing a car, um, you get the, to use the car for roughly, let's say, three years or so. And rather than paying for the full price of the car as you would when you purchase it, you're just paying for uh, the depreciation over that three years. So, for example, if you are looking at a $50,000 car, when you buy it, you've got to pay $50,000 for it. When you lease it, if after three years that car is only going to be worth $30,000, over the three your lease, you're just paying on the $20,000. So that's why it's attractive to a lot of people, because you get a low monthly payment. Now, the downside to leasing is uh, you always have a monthly payment. You know, if you buy that $50,000 car and you finance it, let's say, for five years, at the end of five years, you own it, you keep on driving it. When you le- And you don't have any payment associated with it, you know, beyond maintenance and gas and insurance. When you lease a car, however, the three years is up, you've got to find a new car. And you can either go, you know, you can look into buying the car that you're currently leasing, which means taking on more debt, more payments for longer, or then you have to go and find another car, which likely means taking on more debt or another lease. So leasing is good if you want a low monthly payment. It's good if you always want the newest car that you can possibly have. It's good if you don't drive a lot of miles because there are mileage restrictions on them. But the thing to remember is leasing is really good for the automaker because it lets them move the car off their lot and it brings you back into their showroom three years later. So it works for some people, but if you're just looking for strict money spent on automotive transportation, buying is almost always a better idea than leasing. Yeah, John, do you agree? And what's the I guess the the uh, is there an upside on maintenance for leasing? Well, I mean that's part of the problem. A lot of times people don't do any maintenance while they're leasing, figuring that well in three years it's not going to be my car anyway, so what do I really care? Uh, which is not the attitude to have, by the way. Uh, <laughs> the other thing is, you know, sometimes there's the like Jamie very eloquently explained it how you're actually sort of renting that car for a three-year period and assuming part of the debt of the vehicle when the manufacturers um, help with that lease you know if you're looking at you know there there are some leases you know 129 159 dollars a month and a couple thousand dollars down the the numbers don't even make sense at that point because you're leasing a car and uh, you know if you do the math and at the end of at the end of uh, three years you barely put a dent in the cost of that vehicle and part of that's because the manufacturers also want to get an awful lot of you know there's not a, a great used car selection out there now. The used car market is, uh, you look at some of these three, four, and five-year-old used cars, and they have 150,000 miles on them, and they're still very expensive. And by getting some of these cars off of lease and onto the lots as used cars, all of a sudden now you have a more affordable uh, option for the consumer as well. So, you know, Andrew Carnegie, the steel magnet of, you know, the, the 1900s said, always buy an appreciating asset and lease a depreciating asset. Well, there isn't much that loses money quicker than a car. So, you know, maybe there's a, a combination of lessons to be learned there. Sure. Um, we mentioned at the top uh, some of these uh, headlines that are uh, happening in the world of automotives. And I'm curious about what effect they're having maybe either on consumers or on the industry itself. Let's start with the Takata airbag recall. uh, recall. Jamie, uh, just explain briefly what what that is and um, where we are in the process. Yeah, this is just a, you know, a, a, a giant swamp of, of poor decision making um, from a number of organizations. But the most um, automaker that's most commonly associated with the Takata airbag recall is Honda. But what people need to know is that right now, I think uh, nearly 100 million cars are affected by the Takata airbag recall. And basically the issue with it is, is there were some problems with the manufacturing of airbags, which allowed debris to get into them. So if the airbags deploy, um, all of a sudden they're not protecting you. They're actually shooting, you know, projectiles at you. And in some cases, um, there have been a few reports of the airbags deploying uh, when they shouldn't, um, so when there isn't a, a crash involved. <clears throat> but what this really means is, you know, there is the automakers need to replace the airbags, and Takata and the various automakers are working to replace them, but you're talking about nearly 100 million cars 
uh, that are affected and, you know, in a country of 300 million people. So <laughs> there is a long backlog of, um, of cars that need to be fixed, and there are not enough parts to do it. In fact, um, a woman that I work with, she has a car that's affected by it, and um, the, she was told by Honda, do not drive this car. It's unsafe to drive, but it's not going to be fixed for a couple of months. And, you know, she's trying to figure out, you know, should I get a loaner? What should I do with it? And it really is just, you know, a, a terrible situation for consumers um, because they're just simply, you know, it comes down to a physical issue of there are not enough good airbags to fix all of the bad airbags that are currently out there on the road. Now, in some cases, makers will provide you, you know, if it's a really dangerous situation and there's a recall, they'll provide you with some kind of a, a car. In this case, that's just not possible, right? Yeah, there are just too many cars affected. And you have to think, too, I mean, if you're talking about, like, cost to the automaker as well, you know, not only do they have to, you know, pay for new airbags, they have to pay for the repairs. And then if they were to get a loaner for everybody, um, that would just be an astronomical, um, you know, an astronomical price for them to pay. So it really is just all around um, a very complex and difficult situation. And then we have these other scandals, uh, the fuel economy scandal uh, coming out of Mitsubishi, uh, whose who's, uh, president uh, just resigned, um, uh, the Volkswagen emissions test rigging. There's some credibility uh, questions going around. Um, John, does that has that affected consumers? Are they saying, "Hey, I, I don't, I don't trust the the makers here," or, or do they have a, a philosophical view of uh, uh, of of the situation? I think most consumers didn't trust them to start off with, uh, but to, to actually hear some of these other issues with, especially fuel economy, I think the one that was probably most apparent a few years ago where Hyundai was touting 40 miles per gallon on a lot of their vehicles and the cars generally didn't get that type of fuel economy and uh, Hyundai fixed the problem by giving everybody a gas card that was worth $500 that in theory made up for the lack of you know, gas mileage you were getting. And Volkswagen sort of did the same thing uh, with anybody who owned a, a TDI diesel, which as an auto writer, you know, we love those cars. Those cars are a lot of fun to drive and, and they're, and they're, they get, they get great fuel economy. Um, and then we were all sort of, we were shocked what what happened, but you know, most of the Volkswagen, most of the Volkswagen owners, you know, took advantage of the $500 gift card and the $500 service card. And they're just waiting to see what's going to happen. But I think all of this has caused a lot of people to go, you know, what's really going on. And I think the airbag issue, you know, as big as this recall is, the latest round of recalls where they added another, I don't know, 40 million vehicles to the recall list, those are cars that um, potentially may not have a problem for 10 years, but they're saying, look, you know, this is part of that same run of vehicles. We know there's going to be a you know, we know there is eventually going to be a problem and they need to be fixed. But I heard some crazy numbers out there that, you know, there there are cars out there that may not be fixed till the year 2020. Wow. Yeah, that's just hard. That's hard to imagine. Um, the, uh, uh, you guys test drive cars, right? You get a chance to try things out. Have either of you um, been inside a Tesla lately? I haven't been. I know Tesla has a very small press fleet, and it's very difficult to be to <laughs> get it? on a list yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. John. Yeah, my yeah. boss actually has a Tesla, uh -huh. and um, he he bought it for himself as as his uh, I guess you know eventually going to retire. So he thought he'd buy himself a, a a different type of car. And we went out for a ride in it just a couple of weeks ago, and it's a pretty impressive car. And as we were driving, I said to him. Do you have any interest in the new car coming out? And he said, "Yeah, I already have my thousand dollar deposit down yeah, for it." Yeah, it's amazing. And, and is this is this because it's a Tesla? Because it's uh, electric? What's driving the interest? It's like the what? line out in front of the Apple store when when the uh, when the latest when the latest. Uh, uh, you know, iPhone comes out, I think. It's it's a combination of things. People are just infatuated with the Tesla brand. And, you know, they they have taken so many orders, I guess close to 400,000 orders now. I'm not sure when they'd be able to build them all. Yeah. Um, uh, this is a question from my son, who has now become fixated on, uh, he's 10, on the self-driving cars, uh, which are a ways off. Uh, and now we're hearing that maybe it might be uh, semi-trucks, com large commercial trucks that would be first. Um, it, how close are we to this reality, and how, do you, how does it fit into to our, I guess, our conventional way of, 
you know, buying cars and the way we think about cars, is it, is it close enough to actually be thinking about? You know, it's interesting. I wouldn't say that it's, it's you know, close enough to, you know, it's not really a Jetsons-type future yet. You know, mm-hmm. that's not exactly around the corner. But what I do think is really interesting is that, you know, cars right now, especially the new cars, are more self-driving than you would actually think. Um, so, for example, this week I'm testing uh, the Infiniti QX80 which has stuff like lane keeping assist and forward collision alert. And those types of safety features, which are becoming more and more common on new cars, those are examples of self-driving cars. And there's even cars with systems that go a little bit farther where they can, you know, detect a pedestrian and stop the car before they hit them, detect another car and stop the car before it hits. Um, so there really is, you know, it's, it's closer than you think for passenger cars. And in some cases, you're already riding around in a somewhat autonomous, I wouldn't say semi-autonomous, but somewhat autonomous vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, I think, a ways off from the kind of future where we're all just hopping in the car, pulling out our books, um, and commuting to work that way. One interesting thing is, you know, John Paul and I will be taking part in a conference um, with the New England Motor Press Association at MIT uh, later this week, which will be looking at the future of mobility, where it looks at not just um, cars and autonomous cars, but also different options for mobility. So whether it's owning a personal vehicle that you drive yourself, owning an autonomous car that drives itself, ride sharing. So for example, you can sort of have Uber, but without the driver where you step outside, hit a button on your app, your car comes around, picks you up, drops you off, and goes on to its next errand. Um, You know, things even like, you know, car ownership sharing, bike sharing, things like that. Um, The uh, autonomous cars are really just one part of really the future of transportation as most people see it today. Yeah. Um, And and so I'm thinking, though, that this technology is going to be expensive. And as you were mentioning, Jamie, um, the the price of cars has gone up. The financing uh, terms have gone to eight years. How are we going to afford this technology as, as, as uh, consumers of, uh, of vehicles? Well, I think, you know, how we're going to afford it, it goes back to leasing and longer loan terms. There's, you know, when we're talking about average transaction prices of vehicle, um, I think I read that in April, they are around $34,000. And that is the average price of a new car. So there are some that cost a lot, lot more than that. And I would even just looking at the prices of new cars today, very few that actually cost uh, below average. But when you're talking about transaction prices, you have to realize that today's cars are more heavily contented than any previous type of car. So you've got more safety features. You've got more features that help with fuel economy. You have more connectivity features as people demand, you know, more entertainment and more tech. And so really, transaction prices are a reflection of the demands that people are putting on their cars. If you want your car to do a lot, expect to pay a lot as well. And so when it comes to, are people going to be able to afford this? I think that's kind of, you know, the, the $100,000 question, um, because wages are not keeping pr- not keeping pace with new car prices. And that's where you see things like leasing becoming more and more popular, because one of the nice things about leases is it gets you into a car that you could not afford to buy, yeah. but you can own it for two to three years and drive it for two to three years. Um, and it, it, again, makes cars more, uh, you know, in reach. You're seeing leasing rates now, not just in luxury car um, brands, but leasing rates from affordable car brands like Chevrolet are getting above 30%. So 30% of their sales are coming from just leasing, not buying. Um, and then beyond that, you're seeing these new car loans that are getting up to eight years. Um, so, you know, people are going to be paying for this car in a lot of cases, you know, long after they're done driving it. And the debt just keeps getting folded over into their next car purchase and their next car purchase. Um, So I think it really is, you know, there's a potential that we could be looking at um, when it comes to new cars, kind of a pricing and affordability bubble where people are demanding um, the things from their cars that they really can't afford to pay for in the long term. And John Paul, we're going to take a quick break here, but I wanted to ask you, what does this mean for fixing cars? Will, Will we have to go then, do you think, in future to the dealer who will be the only person or the only place that's equipped to fix all of the components that make up a modern car. Well, that's a very good point. A couple years ago uh, in Massachusetts, there was a bill passed that was called Right to Repair. And then there was a memorandum of understanding across the other 49 states that said that independent repair shops would be able to get the same level of repair information that would be available to the dealer. Well, that sounded good in theory, but 
what really probably it should have said in hindsight was they should get the same level of repair information that's available from the vehicle manufacturer because a lot of and the tesla is a great example uh, a lot of what happens with the tesla gets updated over the air so it actually doesn't involve any repair shop at some point and that's the fear that eventually the technology in the car because of the telematics ability of the vehicle for that vehicle to transmit and receive information, that information may only come at some point from the new car dealer or from the new car manufacturer through the new car dealer only. So it could get a little bit tricky in the future right. what's really going to happen. Self-driving and self-fixing. We'll take a quick break. The number to join the conversation, 800-399-3566. This is Maine Calling. We'll be right back. You make Maine Calling possible, as do the University of Maine School of Law. Located in Portland, committed to justice and leadership in a changing world. MainLaw.Maine.edu And the Grand in Ellsworth, presenting the Farnsworth Invention, a play by Aaron Sorkin, June 3rd through 5th. Tickets and information at GrandOnline.org this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. The motion up for debate. Hunters conserve wildlife. All told, sportsmen contribute a billion dollars a year to wildlife conservation. You can watch a lion a hundred times. You can monetize that each time. You can shoot the animal only once. That's all coming up on Intelligence Squared U.S. And you can hear that program Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock. Our main public classical channel is available online at mpbn.net, around the state on HD radio, and on our new and growing FM network in and around Bangor, Waterville, and Freiburg. Now we're pleased that a new FM station is joining the classical network for the Portland area. 104.1 FM is serving the Portland, Falmouth, Westbrook, and Scarborough areas and beyond. So again, Maine Public Classical, now available in the Portland area on 104.1 FM. More information about our Maine Public Classical channel and the coverage area is at mpbn.net. And welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Keith Shortall. Today on the program, the latest from the world of cars, trucks, and SUVs. On the line with us today, Jamie Page Deaton, automotive editor for U.S. News and World Report, and John Paul, AAA Northeast public affairs spokesperson and a master mechanic. We invite you to join the conversation as well. The number, 800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mpbn.net. Tweet at Maine Calling or post to our Facebook page. Uh, Jamie, we'll go to the uh, phones in a second, but I was looking at some of the best of uh, from U.S. News, uh, which is always interesting. And there were some of the, uh, among the categories, some of the usual suspects, you know, the the Hondas, etc. But for, in one category, the best, I think it was the large car, um, it was the the Chevy Impala. Um, And I guess I I, I don't know why I'd be surprised by that, but I, is that an un, should we be surprised to see Chevy Impala atop a list of best ofs? Oh, no, not at all. I think so. So when, when we're talking about the U.S. News car rankings or any of the awards that we give, um, those awards aren't based on, you know, any but any single person's opinion or even the opinion of our staff, because trust me, they might look a little bit different if mm-hmm. it was just me, you know, handing out the awards. No, what we do is we collect and we analyze every published credible review of a given model. And then when it comes to our awards, we combine that with safety and reliability data and pricing data. And in the case of our best cars for families, we also look at things like interior space um, and availability of family-friendly features. When it comes to the Impala, you know, this is a a car that does very well in our rankings and very well in our awards because auto reviewers love it. I mean, people who are driving every car out there, experts who really, um, you know, who know the industry are getting behind the wheel of the Impala, which was redesigned fairly recently. And, um, you know, let me tell you, it's, it's not your granddaddy's Impala. It's a great upscale large car. I know when I've tested it, you sort of get the feeling of it that it's uh, it's a very, um, you know, for lack of a better term, it's a very American feeling car. It feels mm-hmm. like a car with a blue collar background, but that's done very well for itself. So its interior is approachable, but upscale. It drives uh, very, very well. It's a little bit fun to drive, but it still has the interior space and, you know, smooth ride that a lot of large car shoppers are looking for. Um, and it really speaks to some of the changes that Chevy overall has made to their lineup with some of their redesigns. Uh, for example, the all new 
Malibu is doing really well with sales, totally redesigned. Reviewers absolutely love it. And it's something that, you know, consumers need to keep in mind, even though I think for a lot of people when they're shopping for a new car, you know, your knee-jerk reaction is, yep, go look at Honda, go look at Toyota, yeah. um, because, you know, those are the the big brands that everybody sort of knows for dependability. And for a long time there, Chevy was off in the weeds, but they're not there anymore. So you should really, you know, as you're shopping for a new car, just sort of widen your gaze um, and, and take a look at all the options that are out there, because some of some of the old brands might surprise you. And set aside your preconceptions, which are, which are based on your you know, your memories of these old brands. I mean, I remember, exactly. you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, let's go to the phones. We'll go to Abby in Jefferson. Hi, Abby. Welcome to the program. Hello. Hello. Um, hi. <laughs> so I am one of those uh, TDI owners. I have a Jetta Sport Wagon that I absolutely love, and I am um, just over a year away from paying the vehicle off. Um, and though there hasn't been any type of, you know, resolution from VW yet, I've definitely been looking to see what else is out there and have not found anything that um, I think will offer me anywhere near what I've gotten out of the Jetta. Um, and I'm wondering if there's any, uh, you know, scientists or anybody looking into the potential of me as a um, PDI driver kind of minimizing my carbon footprint via using um, alternative sources like biodiesel. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, kind of if there's any any option for me to be <laughs> um, kind of environmentally conscious, but to keep my vehicle. Yeah. Uh, who would like to tackle that? Well, I, I can give it a shot here. You know, biodiesel is a, a possibility, although... A lot of results show that it really doesn't change tailpipe emissions. What you're doing is you're lowering your carbon footprint because you're you're using a a, a mixture of diesel fuel that's made from uh, the way we conventionally make diesel fuel and other formulations that get mixed in with it. Um, you know, right now the one you know the one pollutant is that oxides of nitrogen. It it's a it's a, it's responsible for ground level ozone, and you know the reports are you know up to 40 times worse than it was tested at. Um, you know it's the up to number that always confuses me because I don't really know is it what that really means. I know when you actually look at the numbers, uh, the oxides of nitrogen, the NOx number, is about the equivalent of a car in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, so, and there's an awful lot of those floating around too. So I think, you know, your best bet is, you know, sure you could, you could, if you can find biodiesel, well, that's certainly going to help. Uh, you know, finding a car that's the equivalent of fun to drive well now the problem is you're stuck with a car that nobody sh is quite sure if they want although i've been told there are you know if you're if you're buying a car right now maybe a used tdi diesel is a, a great buy because eventually eventually they will get fixed nobody knows what the fix is yet and that's the big problem is it just a software fix or is it a software fix in the addition of the um the uh, catalyst after treatment, the AdBlue uh, urea additive that gets put in, well, that's going to require a lot of work. It's going to require modifications of the body and, and some other things. Um, I My suspicion is it'll probably be the software fix. And Consumer Reports did a pretty interesting test where they actually did look at the, the vehicle and how it turned out when it was in the test mode. And the fuel economy numbers were about what the EPA sticker said they were going to be. In fact, I think they were exactly what they said they were going to be. And the uh, performance numbers were off about one second. So for most drivers, they probably wouldn't notice. Um, you know, they might notice they're not getting the, the fantastic fuel economy that their car gets, although they're going to get the fuel economy their car was supposed to get. So, you know, they, you know, most TDI drivers will say, I always beat the EPA numbers all the time. Well, in fact, they'll probably settle back down to somewhere in between. So I think the best thing to do is, you know, drive the car as in, in, is environmentally, you know, conscious way that you can. If you can find biodiesel, certainly that's a good idea. And hold on to it and wait and see what Volkswagen's going to do. You know, there's also talk that Volkswagen, you know, Volkswagen is admitting it, but the rumor mill says, you know, they may hand you a check for $5,000 on top of it. Oh, well, a little a little bonus for your trouble. Uh, Abby, best well, of... Or, or, 
or blackmail money. Either way, you know, you can look at it either way. However you'd like to. You said that. I say. Uh, let's <laughs> go, Abby. Good luck with that. Let's go to Margie in Jonesboro. Hi, Margie. Hi. How Hi. you doing, guys? Good. How are you doing? Yeah. Oh well, uh, I'm doing good. Oh. Um, my cousin is furious because she has to wait three months to get that airbags done. And I just got off the phone with her a little while ago, and she said that, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that, that are, you know, that the recalls. But besides that, I just want to say, what do you guys think of the TFX flying car that's going to be around in 20 years? What do you think? going to be flying over our heads or what? <laughs> <laughs> Huh? <laughs> Any thoughts on the flying car and and or the wait time uh, on the on the airbag, Jamie? Yeah, I mean, like I said before, the wait time on the airbag is just there. Just aren't enough airbags to go around, and there's just going to be a really long wait for it, and there's no way around it. Um, as for the flying car, as someone who is absolutely terrified of um, getting on an airplane that is flown by professionals um, who have years and years of training, there is no way you would get me in a flying car, particularly if there were other people piloting flying cars around me. Um, it's just one of those things where, you know, I'm just too much of a weenie to go for it. But yeah. if a flying car floats your boat, by all means, you know, take off one less car on the road for me to deal with. Yeah. Um, let me ask one of you two, Jamie or John, if, if you had the airbag problem, would you would you continue to drive um, yourselves with it? Well, I, could, I guess I've been fortunate. Neither car in our family is subjected to the airbag recall yet uh, my wife drives a late model Volkswagen I drive an older Hyundai and neither of them have or fall under the category of the recall I think at this point the um, the hot weather humid states Florida and such that's where the biggest issues are showing up that's where the that's where the propellant uh, causes the most amount of problems and causes the, the plastic shell to harden and, and fail. Um, I was talking to someone just the other day who said they winter in Florida and summer uh, at, the, at, at the main coast and they said well I'm in, I'm in two areas of high humidity and they still tell me it's going to be three months before I can get the recall done and their car was a fairly new car. The manufacturers from what I understand are starting to do the older cars first because those are the ones that are more apt to have the problem. So I think if I had one of those cars and it is, um, I gave the wrong answer to an insurance person the other day. He said to me, uh, you know, I have an Audi and I just took it out of storage. It's my summer car. It's a convertible, but it's subject to the recall. What do I do? And I said, don't hit anyone. Right, right. <laughs> that's, that's good advice. Uh, um, let's go to Walter in Parsonsfield. Hi, Walter. I have an 01 Subaru with 70,000 miles on it. The check engine light went on just a, about a month ago. Called the mechanic. They checked it and said that an oxygen sensor had failed. I had it replaced. It cost just a shade over $400. A month later, the check engine light came on. They told me that there is now another sensor, oxygen sensor, in the rear of the car, which should be replaced. I have also been told generally that, well, if you don't want to, uh, don't replace them, but your mileage will, uh, will go down a bit, and you'll be, of course, pumping out uh, some more pollutants into the atmosphere. So please tell me, how many sensors are there? What can I expect? Another, you know, another failure? <laughs> I can what tell can you. Tell me about these. I can tell you from personal experience. I have a Jeep Liberty, and I've replaced I don't know how many O2 sensors, front and back, uh, and other sensors too. And and he's right. This is a, a bit maddening. But John, um, um, they are needed, I guess, to make the car run right. Uh, and the light will come on if if they fail. Um, so this is just part of the modern car, right? Or, or is that changing? Well, it's certainly part of the modern car. There's no question about it. But it may be that that sensor didn't need to be replaced to start off with. What happens is a lot of times you'll read the code on a car and it will be a code that 
mentions the oxygen sensor and people automatically assume it's a faulty oxygen sensor. Now an oxygen sensor does sort of exactly what its name sounds like. It measures the amount of oxygen in the exhaust stream and caters the fuel system to try to find the perfect fuel mixture. And what happens is sometimes that oxygen sensor is being fooled because there is a leak in the exhaust pipe. It's letting fresh air in, and the oxygen sensor kind of says, "Wait a second! I'm trying to I'm trying to make this car run rich. I'm trying to add more fuel." And people go, "Oh, it's a bad oxygen sensor, or a bad wiring issue, or something like that," and they automatically replace the oxygen sensor. Uh, the car comes back a couple weeks later. The check engine lights back on. Well, there's a rear oxygen sensor. Some is four oxygen sensors. Well, the rear oxygen sensor, its job is to say if the catalytic converter is doing its job or not. Well, replacing the rear oxygen sensor, uh, certainly if it's bad, it makes a lot of sense, but this may be an issue that the catalytic converter is not being as efficient as it should, and that's what's showing up, not necessarily a faulty oxygen sensor. So I think what I would do is go back to the repair shop that did the job and tell them, look, you know, look, here's where the problem, you know, here's the problem, but are you sure it's the oxygen sensor, not something else? Because there's a series of things they need to check before they go to replace the oxygen sensor. And too often oxygen sensors get replaced when in fact they're not really the problem. Yeah, that's been my experience is it's, they, they put the, they look at the code, you need a new sensor, you know, 100 bucks, see you next time. Um, so you can push them on this though, John, and say, Hey, I know a little bit about this. Uh, please check the catalytic converter and uh, the the exhaust. Yeah, I would I would absolutely do that um, if if you can get the code from the person. What whatever the each whenever the check engine light comes on, it generates a code. If you can get the code from the person, and you can even just go online, go to Google and put it, you know, put in your year, make, model and code and and see what other people are replacing. And I think what you'll find is in a lot of cases, it's not the oxygen sensor, but something else. And I've seen cases where, uh, you know, people have done an awful lot of work. And, and in fact, it hasn't, it hasn't ever really solved the problem because the problem was some, something else completely. And, and uh, at uh, you know, 2001, the car is 15 years old now. You know, is the catalytic converter up to doing its job anymore? Maybe not. Are the sensors, you know, all starting to get a little bit outside of their normal range? That's entirely possible. But again, I think a little bit more careful diagnosis. I'd go back to the repair shop and say, hey, look, I brought you my car to fix it. You charge me $400 to fix it. It obviously isn't fixed. Now you're saying it's another sensor? Let's reevaluate. All right. We're going to take a quick, best of luck, uh, Walter, with that. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we want to hear from you as well. The number, 800-399-3566. This is Ming calling. We'll be right back. Next time on The World, a rare fish found only in the tropics has some collectors obsessed. They're willing to pay a small fortune, commit crimes, even kill to add one to their aquarium. In Asia, at least, it's really treated almost like a status symbol fish and something that people often compare to, you know, collecting cars. How the dragonfish is being pursued into extinction. That's next time here on The World. Tune in for The World this afternoon at 3 o'clock. Maine Public Radio is hosting a Frequency Fixer service this Thursday from 7 a.m. through 2 p.m. at our studios in Portland, located at 323 Marginal Way. What are we talking about? A bit of fun. We'll fix your car radio presets to both Maine Public Radio and the new 104.1 FM Portland Maine Public Classical Channel, provide you with a complimentary cup of joe from our partners at Coffee by Design, and give you a copy of our newest radio schedules. Many of MPBN's radio celebrities will be on hand to say hello to set your car radio up for great listening in the months ahead. And welcome back. I'm Keith Shortall. You're listening to Maine Calling. Today on the program, car buying and car fixing advice. On the line with us, Jamie Page Deaton, automotive uh, editor rather for U.S. News and World Report, and John Paul, AAA Northeast Public Affairs spokesperson and a master mechanic. Join the conversation. Give us a call. Our number, 800-399-3566. That's 1-800-399-3566. We'll get to uh, your calls. But Jamie, I wonder if you could run through some of the uh, best of categories, give us a few notes on maybe hybrids for 2016. I know there's a lot of interest among our listeners about the hybrids. Is there anything new and exciting in this realm? 
Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Hybrid sales right now, because uh, gas prices have been so low, hybrid skills sales have really been in the toilet, um, which means that it's a terrible time for Toyota to roll out a brand new Prius, which is exactly what they did this year. Um, that aside, you know, a hybrid typically will cost more uh, than a gasoline-only car because there's a lot more tech under the hood, as we talked about. But um, usually, you know, the, the, the deal that you sort of make is, hey, you know, I'll, I'll make it up by saving on uh, gas. And that math doesn't work for a lot of hybrids right now. But if you're still looking to buy a hybrid for purely environmental reasons and not money-saving reasons, uh, the new Toyota Prius is a great one to take a look at. Uh, it's more powerful than before. It's more fuel-efficient than before. Um, and, you know, looking at reviews of it, it drives a lot more like a conventional automobile. Like, it doesn't have the sort of grabby hybrid brakes um, and, and slow acceleration that you see a lot of times um, in hybrid cars. But what's sort of shocking about hybrids right now um, is how um, diverse they are. So you can get a hybrid and not actually realize that you're getting a hybrid. A lot of uh, cars now have engine stop-start technology where you pull up to a light, um, you stop, and the engine shuts off, but the air conditioning and other accessories keep running. Well, that's a very f- a form of mild hybrid uh, technology that's that allows uh, automakers to keep their fuel economy estimates low. Um, other hybrids, you know, if you don't want a hybrid that looks um, and screams hybrid like a Prius does, you can get hybrid versions of just regular cars that are out there. So, for example, you can get a hybrid uh, Toyota RAV4, which is a small SUV that's getting just absolutely great reviews out there. You can get a hybrid um, Hyundai Sonata. You can get a hybrid Ford Fusion. Um, you can even get, you know, because we are in New England, you can get a uh, hybrid Subaru XV Crosstrek. Um, so, you know, you can have your all-wheel drive and your hybrid powertrain. Um, and a lot of these hybrids really do make a lot of sense for consumers. Just make sure that, you know, you're buying it for environmental reasons, because right now they aren't the best money-saving proposition. And does that involve also, you know, swapping out the batteries at a certain point, the same sort of requirements? Well, most hybrids come with an extended battery warranty. So for most people, it's not going to be an issue um, where the battery, you know, it, with these warranties, the battery tends to be covered separately from the rest of the powertrain. So it's not sort of the concern um, that it was, I think, when hybrids first came out. Um, but right now, you know, if you're looking for a hybrid, it's a great way to sort of get better fuel economy, lower your carbon footprint without giving up too much, by the way, of, you know, driving comfort and performance and things like that. Sure. Let's go to Margaret in Orland. Hi, Margaret. Hi there. I just wanted to uh, put out there that the Nissan Leaf, um, an all-electric car, is really should not be overlooked, and you didn't mention it at the beginning of the show. Um, I have one that's 2015. Uh, it gets um, a, a range of 100, uh, a 95 in the winter uh, up to 110 in good weather, and um, that covers just about 90% of all the, the running around I do where I live. <clears throat> but just as a precaution, I kept my old 96 Honda Civic, which was still puttering along and had only about 160,000 miles on it, as a backup. And I didn't even use it for the first six months that I had the um, <clears throat> Nissan. And uh, so I've also tracked how much it cost me and. um <clears throat> In terms of electricity costs per mile, which is uh, three and a half to four cents a mile for the electricity that it uses, <clears throat> so it really is very uh, a very good thing. Not only that, but although it costs thirty thousand dollars to begin with, um, it was it was really brought down to twenty thousand on a combination of seven thousand five hundred dollar um, uh, tax credit from the federal government, and, which I still think is out there. And um, the the rest of it was a rebate that Honda, I mean that uh, Nissan gave me. So you know, it's and I feel good because it's it, my main purpose was to keep my um, uh, footprint down on on the carbon, and and so um, I, I think it should be out there. Yeah, uh, Jamie, any thoughts? Oh, yeah. That's one car that, you know, we didn't mention. Um, But it actually kind of segues nicely into, you know, you were asking us about, um, you know, Tesla as a brand and the Model 3 um, that's just coming out, which is their new affordable model. Um, And, and, you know, the caller makes a really good point, and that is the federal tax credits. Um, And there are a number of other all-electric cars out there um, that you can take advantage of right now, like the Nissan Leaf. There's the BMW i3. There's a Ford Focus Electric. Um, But they don't really have the same cachet as a Tesla does. Um, And I think John's point 
point was spot on where he's talking about, you know, there's a certain brand um, that goes along with Tesla where it's like Apple, you know, it's the cool new electric car. And the thing with the Model 3, though, that Tesla's bringing out is, you know, it's their more affordable model. um, And they're counting on these federal government and in some cases state tax credits to bring the price of this car down for consumers to where it's more mainstream and affordable. The thing is, the way the federal tax credit for hybrid and electric cars work is it's based on the number of cars sold of hybrid or electric cars sold by the manufacturer. And when it hits, I think it's I think it's 200,000 models sold, then that tax credit gets phased out and then the next consumers can't take advantage of it. So if you're talking about the 300 some thousand people who've placed orders for the Tesla Model 3 expecting it to cost um, a little less than sticker price because of the federal tax credit, a good number of those people are not going to be able to take advantage of that federal tax credit and their Model 3 is going to end up costing them a good deal more. Same. And you also, um, John, mentioned with manufacturers helping out with um, leases when we were talking about leasing before. Um, The LEAF, the Fiat 500 electric, which isn't a 50-state vehicle, it's only sold in some locations, those are electric cars that automakers, and in some cases as well, the Chevy Volt, um, Chevy's also kicking in money towards the leases there too. It becomes incredibly cost-effective for people to own because the automaker ends up paying part of the lease because when they sell these cars, it helps bring down their corporate average fuel economy and helps them meet targets targets set by the federal government. So basically, when you buy you know, a LEAF and you get a really good lease deal on it because Nissan's kicking in a bunch of incentives and the federal government is um, you know, paying pay, or giving you a tax break on it, what that effectively does is because it lowers the average fuel economy rating for Nissan, it allows them to sell more cars um, that get worse fuel economy but have better profits for the company as well. So these are really good cars for consumers to take advantage of. Um, but just never forget, there's always something in it for for the automaker as well. All right, let's go to Steve, who's listening to us in New Brunswick. Hi, Steve. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. You were talking earlier about people that have problems with their airbag and they can't drive their vehicle for three, four, and five months, maybe a year. If somebody told me that, I would just go to my local mechanic and have him take the airbag out or pull the fuse. Yeah, John Paul, is that something? Is that something you yeah. can or should yeah, do? I, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I have real mixed feelings on that because the the chances of the airbag saving your life or minimizing the amount of uh, bodily damage that could happen in a severe crash, I think, as compared to the very, at this point, very slim chance that you're going to get hurt by a, the airbag in your car, um, uh, you know, I asked that question to somebody at uh, National Highway Traffic Safety, and they are absolutely opposed to uh, disconnecting an airbag in a vehicle. So I, I think I'm kind of going with that sort of same direction. Uh, you know, all the studies show that an airbag, you know, minimizes your chance of getting into a fatal collision by about 15 to 20 percent. And the, the, the numbers just, the, the, it's all gambling, I guess, at some point, but the numbers show that your chances of being involved uh, or being injured or killed in a car that has a defective airbag are, are infinitesimal compared to that. So although they are certainly dangerous and over time they will only get worse, I think disconnecting the airbag is not a great idea. All right. I would just like to add just one thing. Um, You know, we're talking about a a recall that affects 100 million cars. And so far, there's only been 11 deaths associated with it. Um, And I know those deaths are terrible for, you know, those individuals and their families. But it does, you know, speak to what John is saying there, that, you know, your risk is greater going without an airbag than um, it is to have one of these defective airbags. All right. Let's go to Pat. And Pat, are you in New Jersey or just from New Jersey? No, no, no. I'm from New Jersey and I'm traveling through Maine on my way to PEI. Ah, Well, welcome. Thank you. And my question was about, um, I'm a life, well, not lifelong, but I'm a lover of Pontiac Bonneville since 1987. And now I'm forced to confront the idea that my 2002 and my 2004 Pontiac won't be around for too much longer. So I have about 400,000 miles on the two of them. So I'm wondering... I don't know enough about cars, and I love driving these cars. I love that they're powerful, relatively good on gas mileage, and really comfortable and luxurious, and more room in the trunk than any SUV I've ever rented. So I need some guidance, I think. What can Pat do when she says goodbye to her Bonnevilles? 
Oh, Pat, you're in for a really nice surprise, because um, as nice as the Bonnevilles from, from 2002 and 2004 are, new cars today are a lot nicer. Um, they've really come a long way. Um, and this is where I'm going to do a shameless plug. Pat, you should go check out the U.S. News car rankings at usnews.com slash cars um, when you get off the road and get to your destination, um, because there you can you can sort through all of the ranking lists of cars by class. Um, a couple of places that I would start if I was yours, you know, take a look at the Ford Fusion, take a look at the all-new Chevy Malibu, um, because a lot of the stuff uh, that GM learned, you know, with the Pontiac Bonneville, they are able to apply to, you know, their other brands like like Chevy and, and with the Malibu as well. Um, so those are two places that I would really start out with. And when you're talking about, you know, power and fuel economy, today's modern engines, um, you know, cars are able to get absolutely shocking fuel economy. Um, and I mean that in a good way. Um, some Every time these fuel economy numbers get out, and of course I take them with a grain of salt now since the VW scandal and Mitsubishi and Hyundai and things like that. Um, but even with taking that into account, um, today's fuel economy numbers are really good with very little sacrifice in power. So um, I think when it comes time to say goodbye to your Bonnevilles, it's going to be a little bit bittersweet because you'll be sad to see them go. Uh, but I think you're going to be really happy with the array of new car options that are available for you. Pat, could you just maybe keep a Bonneville, you know, in the driveway and just go sit in it once in a while? Just... It has such great power, I have to say. I commute on Route 78 that runs right from downtown Manhattan into Pennsylvania every day. And the cruising speed in the slow lane is 78 miles an hour most mornings. And I never feel like I'm going to be run down by a truck or, you know, I just really feel confident in this car. It has such power. And yet it feels like a luxury car, too, to me still. So I, I don't, you know, I, my husband has company cars that are not as nice now. Um, they're GM cars as well. But, you know, when I'm only going to buy an American-made or a North American sort of made car, you know, I'm not even... Um, so that, that yeah. narrows the field. Well, check really, out the... Yeah, sorry, we're running out of time, Pat. I apologize. But um, check out the site, the U.S. News site. There's a, just a lot of information there, and maybe you'll be able to find the substitute for your beloved Bonneville. Jamie, John, thanks so much. It's gone uh, very quickly this hour, but you did a great job, and we really appreciate you having here today, being here today. So thanks a lot. Thank you. My pleasure. Jamie Page Deaton, automotive editor for U.S. News and World Report. And John Paul is Northeast Public Affairs spokesperson for AAA, and he is a master mechanic as well. John Keimel ran the board today. Sidney Campbell answered your calls. Main Calling is produced by Cindy Hahn and Jonathan Smith. And today's program, of course, will be rebroadcast this evening at 8. Tomorrow on the program, join host Jennifer Rooks, for a conversation about medication-assisted treatment for people addicted to opioids. We'll learn who this treatment works for and why it's considered one of the most effective ways to help those addicted to opiates. I'm Keith Shortall. You've been listening to Maine Calling on the Maine Public Broadcasting Network.